you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be in uh, verse 25 of chapter 4, all the way through the first two verses of chapter 5. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2 is our passage today. It might be a, an interesting study to trace the theme of walking in the Bible. I'd not thought of that until this week. Uh, I imagine if we did that, uh, sometimes we've done themes in our Fellowship of the Word gatherings where we think about it from Genesis to Revelation. And if we thought about the theme of walking, I would think that we would first notice Adam walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And then we might observe Enoch, who is said to have been taken uh, into God's presence supernaturally. Why? Because he walked with God, we're told. We would probably then see Abraham, the, the sojourner, walking through the land of Canaan and later commanded by God to walk before him and be blameless. And eventually we would get to the, the book of Exodus and we find that the Israelites do a whole lot of walking, uh, including walking out of Egypt and walking through the Red Sea with God's presence leading them in a fire and in cloud. And eventually, I think we would get to the New Testament and we would arrive at the writings of Paul and we would notice that Paul often talks about the Christian life as a walk. Putting Paul's command into the context of his original audience, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around just how, com how common walking was in the first century let alone how common walking has been throughout human history. We, we take cars for granted as well as roads and airplanes and trains and, and buses. These modern day conveniences are how we get everywhere such that walking feels actually not like something that's common, but it feels like the exception. Uh, Ken and I had lunch this week and I, I walked to the place that we were meeting and that felt like a novelty, so much so that when I was rehashing my day with Andrea, I said, I, I walked to lunch. I didn't tell her that I drove different places, but I told her I walked somewhere because that was unique. But for the people that Paul was writing to, walking made up a large portion of their lives. Uh, and in fact, Paul uses this illustration of walking to speak of how his hearers lived their entire lives. As we read the book of Ephesians, then we find that when Paul talks about the way we walk, he is talking about the way that we live. He, he, he's talking about what goes on and what encompasses the 24 hours of each day that we are alive, and even the way that we think about and experience life moment by moment. Walking includes the, the people we interact with. It includes all the places that we go and everything that we do. Within this illustration, Paul has actually been making the case that when we were apart from Christ, we walked in a very different way. We lived a very different life. Our lives and our view of life was unlike what it is now that we are in Christ. You'll remember hopefully in chapter two that Paul reminded us that we walked as dead, enslaved, and condemned people, which meant according to our passage last week that we walked like the Gentiles, which means that we walked as those that are far from God. We were foolish, we were alienated, we were callous, we were given over to sin. But that way of, of walking is all past tense for those who are in Christ. You remember, that's not how we learned Christ. If we are in Christ through repentance and faith, then we've been made alive, we've been freed, we've been forgiven. God has prepared good works 
for us to walk in. He's called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he has called us into, which means that we walk in unity as God's people and we walk in holiness and purity. Very practically, we saw last week that we walk in holiness and purity by putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self and walking in in the power of of God's spirit as his children, living as representatives of Christ in everything that we think, say, and do. Like Abraham, we are to walk before God in the land and be blameless. Like the Israelites, we are to walk in obedience to God even in the wilderness. Like Adam and Enoch, we are to be those who walk with God. There's a tension in this new walk in that it's who we are and also who we are becoming. The new walk is is who we are already. We are those forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, walking in him, and it is also who who we are becoming each day as we say no to sin and yes to Christ through the power that is at work in us. So as Paul opens verse 25 of chapter 4 with these words, therefore, or for this reason, he's linking us back to to verses 17 through 24, and telling us that it's because God has made us his own through the work of Christ that we are now able and even compelled to walk in these specific ways that he lays out. And in this passage, he he gives us some very specific steps to take each day. He tells us what it looks like to put one foot in front of the other so that God is glorified in our lives and we find joy walking in ever-increasing holiness. We could summarize today's passage, in fact, the same way that we summarized last week's, which was walk as those made new in Christ. But I think Ephesians 5.2 gives us another phrase that's going to serve as a, a solid big idea. And it's simply this, walk in love. Walk in love. I think that's what Paul is communicating to us. As those made new, called to walk in unity and holiness, the practical way that we go about that is to walk in in love. And walking in love involves putting off unloving acts, being renewed in the spirit of our mind so that we remember who we are and whose we are, and then putting on the acts of love that represent Christ well. If you're not a Christian today, then know that these commands are not God's means of saving you, but they are rather the fruit that flows from God's spirit indwelling those God has saved. Your hope is not found in fulfilling this checklist because you can't. Rather, it is found in repenting of sin, putting it off, and trusting that Jesus has lived this life of perfect holiness and died for your imperfection, putting on the forgiveness and the righteousness that he offers. But if you are in Christ, then these verses give us instruction for how to do exactly what our new hearts want to do because we want to walk in love if we are in Christ. Sometimes we just don't know how to do it. And so here we have laid out for us very clearly what it looks like to walk in love. Now before we read Ephesians 4, 25 to 5, 2, let me remind you and remind me that these words are written to a church. And while we have specific ways that we as individuals need to respond to these instructions, it's all within the body of Christ that this is happening. In fact, these verses, while they have applications to how Christians relate to the world, they seem to be focused on how we are to live with and treat those who are a part of the church. 
They are a reminder that holiness is not simply worked out in my private life, but holiness has to do with how I love my neighbor, especially my neighbor who is also my brother or sister in Christ. So as you think about this walk, don't think about it as a solitary one. Maybe think instead about the caravan of the Israelites leaving Egypt because of the great act of redemption and they're heading towards the promised land. We are walking as a large group of people heading towards the promised land. Okay, that's enough intro. Let's read. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2, and notice all these practical ways of walking in love. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does it look like to walk in love? What does it mean to walk in love? Notice first in this passage we see this. We don't lie, we speak the truth. To walk in love means we don't lie, we speak the truth. Paul wrote something very similar in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. He says, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here in Ephesians, Paul is possibly and probably uh, quoting from Zechariah 8.16, which Joel read earlier. There's an instruction in, the, there's instruction in there for the, the remnant of the faithful uh, Israelites who would be living in Zion, uh, and in some ways, similarly, we are God's new people living in this world, and both of these groups, them and us, were to be marked by not lying. Lying is something that we have put away from us. Instead, we're to be radical tellers of the truth. Deception and lies of all shapes and sizes are, are held out to us each day, tempting us cheating on our taxes, deceiving those that we love. But the Christian rejects this temptation to lie and instead seeks out opportunities to speak the truth in love. We might ask, why, why does Paul start with lying? Why is that the first thing that he mentions? Uh, just thinking about that, I thought, well, we, consider, we could think about the fact that the original sin uh, in the garden was the fruit of a lie. Satan deceived Eve. And the devil, we're told, 
is the father of lies so that when we are enslaved to him, when we're walking in that old way, what do we do? We tell lies. But who is Jesus? Jesus is the truth. And as his children, we are to always speak the truth. But in fact, the reason for this command and the reason that it's maybe mentioned first seems to actually be stated in the passage. It, it emerges when we remember that these commands are for the church because a community needs to be built on, on the trust that's found in truth-telling. So Paul says, tell the truth to your neighbor. Why? Because we are members one of another. Why tell the truth? Because we're members, because we're family. John Stott says it well, fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines fellowship while truth strengthens it. That's common sense, but it's, it's good to hear those words. Falsehood undermines fellowship. Truth strengthens it. Lying to one another is going to undermine our unity. But truth-telling of all kinds draws us together. Walking in love means we, we don't lie. We speak the truth. Second, it means we don't let our anger lead to sin. This is in verse 26. We don't let our anger lead to sin. Now, if you're thinking, you might say, what do you mean we don't let our anger lead to sin? Isn't anger sin by itself? <laughs> well, verse 26 seems to clearly teach that there is a way to be angry and not sin. You see it? Be angry and do not sin. I think Paul, again, is drawing on the Old Testament. Psalm 4.4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. As we try to, to understand that anger, uh, an anger that is not sin, we might look at, uh, James 1 came to my mind, and I realized, well, there's no outright command against anger in James 1. James 1, 19 through 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, not Never be angry, but be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what's unique here in verse 26 is that Paul is almost telling us to be angry. It looks like a command. However, Baal says this. He says, this is not a command to anger per se. It's a, a recognition that there are certain kinds of anger and vexation that are warranted and permissible for the godly in this life. I will reference you, I will turn you to Jake's sermon on righteous anger that he preached not too long ago. You can listen to it all, but he listed three criteria for what righteous anger is. Righteous anger is a response to actual sin, as opposed to just my preferences or an inconvenience to me. Righteous anger is more concerned with how God and his kingdom is being offended. And righteous anger is expressed in a godly manner. So Paul is saying that righteous anger is permitted. But could we go further? Think about this with me. Again, this is about living in community. And if we're living in community, let's be honest, there's times when we're just going to be mad at each other. There's going to be anger towards one another. And often, we're told that there's two options for anger. What are the options? You either blow up and lash out at people, or you stuff it down and suppress that anger. And obviously, the Christian thing to do is to stuff our anger, right? 
<laughs> Don't lash out. Just, just stuff it. Ignore it. Deny it. Pretend it doesn't exist until you get an ulcer or you have a heart attack or you really blow up at someone. That's often how we deal with anger, I think, as, as Christians. However, Paul, I think, is a little bit more realistic about anger, isn't he? Is he possibly saying, be angry, feel that anger that you have, and then deal with it. Do something about it and do it right away. Deal with your anger right away. What's he say? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't let this anger become bitterness. And don't ignore it because what's, what's going to happen? The devil is going to take that emotion and he's going to turn it into a means of dividing you. So don't lash out. But also, don't deny your anger. Paul's saying, deal with your anger and do it before the day is done. If we fail to deal with our anger towards one another, the unity and the holiness of the church is threatened, not to mention all our other relationships. But as those who are in Jesus, we are honest and we acknowledge our anger and then we deal with it right away. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons and daughters of God. Walking in love means we don't let our anger lead to sin. Next, verse 28 we don't steal. <laughs> we work and give. What does it mean to walk in love? It means we don't steal. We work and give. I'm not a, a scholar of the first century, but it would seem that stealing was a bit more widespread and even accepted in Paul's day, at least the kind of stealing that simply allowed a person to survive. But the follower of Jesus was to root out every kind of stealing because no stealing of any kind is acceptable for the Christian. Again, Bao is helpful. He says that the heart of stealing is two things, covetousness, we might say greed, and laziness. The heart of stealing is covetousness and laziness. And in seeing the heart of thievery there, we see the wonder of this put-off, put-on pattern that Paul is giving us. Paul rightly instructs those who steal. He says, stop doing that. But that's not the only instruction he gives, right? What does he say? He helps, them, he helps us to see how we have been transformed by Jesus so that we are no longer driven by coveting and laziness. Instead of stealing, what are we supposed to do? We're to work. The goal is not to get as much as we can with as little effort as possible, but rather to work hard so that we can provide for our needs. And not only for our needs, but also for the needs of others. We are to work so that we can give to others. Put off stealing, which includes putting off covetousness and laziness. And what are we supposed to put on? Hard work and generosity. I don't know how many people in here are thieves. If you do a lot of stealing in your life, I'm not sure. Uh, but I would imagine not a lot of us. Uh, but do we ever struggle with laziness? You ever steal from your employer maybe in that way? Or from your family in some ways by being lazy? Uh, are we covetous? Do we work hard just so we can get what we want? Or are we working hard so that we can be filled with generosity to give to others? You know, walking in love would be pretty easy if it just meant not shoplifting and being honest on your taxes. We'd all probably pass that test. 
But walking in love also means ridding ourselves of a laziness that puts my needs above others and a covetousness that, that rarely gives to people in need. This is something that only God can do in a person, shaping us more and more into the image of, of Jesus, Jesus who labored and gave his life for others. So we're starting to see what it looks like to walk in love, and we see next in verse 29, what does walking in love look like? It means our speech is not rotten, but life-giving. Our speech is not rotten, but life-giving. We've seen a little bit about speech already. Lying has to do with speech, and our anger often overflows out of our mouths. But here in verse 29, Paul speaks specifically about our speech. And he says that corrupting talk should not come out of our mouths. It's the word corrupting. It's the word used for rotting fruit. So maybe you can get that picture in your mind. Imagine a piece of fruit on your counter. We've got a ton of peaches right now. It's peach season. Peaches are delicious, but a rotting peach is disgusting. So just start thinking about that, a rotting peach maybe, and, and you look at it and it starts to go bad and it, and it starts to look terrible and then it starts to smell terrible and the only thing you want to do with that peach is throw it in the trash. Paul says that our words should not be rotten and decomposing like bad fruit, tearing down others. The follower of Jesus is not someone who hurts and demeans other people. It's not who we are. But that's not all he says, right? This is not just Paul saying, if you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. That's not what he's saying. That, that's good advice, but as members of Christ's body, we're not just to be silent, but we are to seek out life-giving words that build other people up. We put off rotten speech, and what do we put on? We put on taking every opportunity we can find to build others up. In the foyer today, in, in, in our homes, amongst our family, in our text messages, in phone calls, in letters, on social media, in every place, we're looking for the right opportunity to say something life-giving. We don't sit around and rehearse how we can give someone a piece of our mind the next time we see them. No. We think about, how could I build that person up the next time I see them? What's a good word that I could say that would encourage my brother or sister in Christ? Do you spend more time thinking about how you can choose someone out? Rehearsing conversations where you wish you, wish you would have just said that one zinger that really would have got that person? Or do we spend time thinking, how could I really encourage my brothers and my sisters in Christ? As we arrive at verse 30, we could say that all of the negative actions and attitudes of these verses are a grieving of the Spirit. So we could apply verse 30 to everything. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All these things are a putting, they're like putting water on the fire of holiness that the Spirit is lighting in us through conviction and through his promptings. But it seems that grieving the Spirit is actually specifically tied to our speech, to the words that we say. When our, our words are corrupting, when our words are rotten, they cause the unity of the church to, to disintegrate. And, and we're working against the Spirit because the Spirit is seeking to draw us together and to bring life. Remember Ephesians 4.3, we are to be eager to do what? To maintain the unity of the Spirit. 
in the bond of peace. When we allow rotten words to come out of our mouths, we are suppressing the leading of the Spirit because who is the Spirit? The Spirit is the great comforter. The the Spirit is the great encourager. He's the one who helps us recall truth. He's the one who, who speaks encouragement to us. And so to speak words of discouragement is the opposite of the Spirit's work. And as those who are indwelt by him, we are to put off rotten words. And we're to put on timely words that minister grace to others. So Christian, how are your words? Is your speech rotten? Does it tear down those around you? Or is it life-giving? Are your words refreshing and uplifting? And are you even seeking out opportunities to speak those kinds of words? Well, we move now to verses 31 through 32. And we find that to walk in love means we are not controlled by unkindness, but by kindness. We are not controlled by unkindness, but by kindness. Uh, Unkindness It's kind of a cop-out word. I couldn't come up with a good one. (laughs) I couldn't come up with a word to summarize those six negative attitudes that are listed in verse 31. Let's try and think about them, though. Uh, Bitterness. Bitterness could be described as a negative outlook on life. Uh, Andrew and I both turned 40 last year, and we've been talking lately about uh, the fact that as we grow older, I I feel like we have a choice. We can get bitter or we can become kind. And so, so often as we, as we grow older, we become grumpy. And we become bitter people, judging the world and everyone in it with, uh, with a judgmental eye. But bitterness is, is something that the follower of Jesus is putting away always. We're also putting away wrath and anger. We're not marked by moments of intense anger or, or a settled disposition of hostility. Now, clearly, there's, a, there's an, an anger that is unlike the anger of verse 26. And this is the kind of anger we put off. As James says, this kind of anger doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. We get rid of anger and wrath. We get rid of clamor. Clamor, that's not a word we use too often, is it? Uh, The NIV translates this as brawling. Again, not one we use too often. But it's this kind of anger that overflows in, in shouting and screaming and maybe even physical violence. Paul's saying the man or woman who's filled with the Spirit is not one who easily tolerates those kinds of outbursts in him or herself. And we don't tolerate slander. Our world is filled with assuming the worst about people and then saying those words to their face or behind their backs. But the Christian is not marked by slander, not marked by mean-spirited words. So we put off all of these things. We say no to all this unkindness. And in contrast, what do we put on? We put on and we pursue kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. I love that list. just makes me smile to, to say it. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Doesn't that just sound so much more refreshing than that list of six words that we just read? To me, it's like when you taste something disgusting and bitter and then you just go running for some water to to get that taste out of your mouth. And these attributes are so much more uplifting, so much more palatable. Kindness. Kindness is such a wonderful word. word. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about when when the Lord is, is, 
does something that I, I just see his hand very clearly, my response is to say, wow, God is so kind. God is kind to us. It seems that this word is often applied to goodness that's shown to those who don't deserve it. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 35 through 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind. <laughs> he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Our hearts are also to be tender, tender towards others. We're, we're compassionate. We assume the, the best of people. We give grace when people are at their worst. And all of this leads to a forgiving spirit, a heart that freely extends grace to others, even those who sin against us. Could be someone who sins grievously against us. We're kind. We're kind and we're tenderhearted and we're forgiving. Could be just someone in our house wakes up grumpy. <laughs> we're kind, tenderhearted, we're forgiving. How do we do that? What well, flows from this constant renewal of our minds around the reality of verse 32? You see verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ has forgiven us. God, who is perfectly just in his wrath and his anger towards sinners, has forgiven us through the sending of Jesus to die for us. And because we are forgiven through God's kindness, we can extend kindness and forgiveness to others. God's love has made our hearts tender, not bitter, not callous, so that we're quick to extend love to others. What does your heart look like right now? Does it look bitter? Is it filled with, with anger, wrath? Or is it tender, ready to forgive? What does it look like to walk in love? It means we don't lie, speak the truth. We don't let our anger lead to sin. We, we don't steal, we work and we give. Our speech is not rotten, it's life-giving. We're not controlled by unkindness, but by kindness. And then the first two verses of chapter five seem to bring everything together and summarize what walking in love means. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does it mean to walk in love? It means we imitate God and image Christ. We imitate God and we image Christ. We are putting off the old self and we're putting on the image of God himself seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Just keep coming back to that imagery of the, the image of, of God that we have been renewed. We were created to image God, to show him in this world and we are now recreated to image the love of God in Christ to this world. All that we are seeking is to be bound up in the character of God himself. We're to put off the sins mentioned in these verses because they don't rightly represent the God who has saved us and who is our Father. And we put on the virtues listed here because we, we are called to be the image of Christ in this world. God in Christ has shown us what holiness is. And so we seek 
to walk in his ways by his grace and his power. Paul tells us that we need to look like children and we need to look like sacrifices offered to God. When we walk in these ways, we tell the world, I am a child of God and this is part of what my father looks like. This is how truthful and patient and generous and encouraging and kind and tenderhearted and forgiving my father is. I want to look like his child. And when we give our whole lives to God, we reflect the sacrifice of Jesus himself who gave himself up for us. We're again back at Romans 12 too, called to be living sacrifices that walk in love toward one another. As you look back over this passage in our short time processing it, I hope that you don't see a list of do's and don'ts. But we could have walked through this, these verses and said, okay, here's what Paul's saying. Don't lie. Don't be angry. Don't steal. Don't say bad things. <laughs> or, or we could have walked through it and we could have said, well, here's all the things you're supposed to do. Tell the truth. Get a job. Give away lots of money. Speak to, other, uh, speak to build others up and be kind. But to make this a list of do's and don'ts, I think it misses the heart of what's happening here because this is not a, a, a checklist, but it's a description of how the person who is in Christ walks through the world because they've been made completely new. They are a child of God. They are a living sacrifice to God's glory. Christian, this is who you are, and this is who you are Becoming, and all of this is possible because of what God has done for us in Christ. This is how, in fact, this, this is different from a, a checklist or how it's even different from the moral standards of any other religion. You could read through this and most other religions would say, yeah, that's all good. We should all do the same things. But, but that's, this is different because we're doing this out of the righteousness that God has, has given us. The gospel says that Jesus has done all of this perfectly, and he's given us his righteousness so that we can stand before God blameless as if we have done this perfectly, but also that God has given us a new heart and God has given us his very spirit so that we can follow him and walk in love. A final thought then. What do you say to people when you part ways? Maybe you just say, bye. <laughs> or you say, see you later. Sometimes we have uh, little friendly commands that we throw out when we're, when we're parting ways. We say things like, drive safe, or have a good day, or don't do anything I wouldn't do. Yeah, those are the kind of things we say. What if we added this? We've got all these greetings, okay? Let's add this to it. What if we said, walk in love? I, I like that. I like that idea of saying, you know, as you leave for the day, you just say to your family, walk in love today. Um, you drop your children off at school and you say, walk in love. You say goodbye to, each, we, the, today we're going to go out in the foyer and everybody's going to do it because I've mentioned it, right? <laughs> we all say to each other as we walk out the door, walk in love. Wouldn't that just be a nice, simple nudge, a simple way to remember who we are? To remember God's love shown to us in Christ and a reminder that we are to walk in the love that he has shown us so that we might show his glory to the world, that we would be these kind of people. And so I'll just say that as my final words. Brothers and sisters, walk in love. 
Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on what that means and ask God to help us, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And we love you because you've made us new and given us a new heart so that we can love you, so that we can love others, so that we can image you in this world, so that we can look like your children, so that we can walk in love. And so, Lord, uh, guard us from from making this a checklist what we go through every day and say well God loves me more now or he loves me less because I've done or not done these things Lord guard us from that legalism and instead Lord fill us with a deep love for you a deep understanding of what you've done for us in Christ and a deep desire to to walk in love to to be who you have already made us to be we ask all this in Christ's name Amen.